Today, I am so honored and excited to introduce Professor Zubak, and he's a professor of international history and with expertise on the Cold War, the Soviet Union, Stalinism, and the Russia's intellectual history in the 21st centuries. Professor Zubak was born and educated in Moscow, and he studied for his undergraduate degree at the Moscow State University, and studied for his PhD at the Institute for the USA and Canada in Moscow. Of course, and his latest book, which I adore the most, it's called Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union. Professor Zubak, and welcome to The Amazing Piece. Uh, good to be with you, Will. Now, Professor, let's get started. Normally, with the first question is, what was your motivation to write this book, and how useful is it today to understand today's geopolitical shift? Well, I should add to what you said so kindly about my biography. I have a most unusual biography, maybe unusual in the old days, more usual today. I'm a migrant. I was born in the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, I was who I was, as I said, but then I moved to the West after the Soviet collapse. And the Soviet collapse was the moment when I was literally in midair uh, and uh, later landing in, uh, in New York and reading the New York Times about uh, Gorbachev being arrested and the Soviet Union in crisis. That was 1991. And 30 years later, I'm professor of the London School of Economics. Uh, you know, of course, uh, we, we face different era, different uh, crises. And uh, when I finished my book um, yeah, a, a, in the summer of previous years, the Ukra previous year, the Ukrainian-Russian conflict was already quite visible for the entire world. Mm. And uh, of course, when I put the last touches on my book, I had in my mind uh, this question, what is the current geopolitical relevance of my book this is just about the predetermined soviet disintegration when many people told me why are you spending so many years researching this question the answer to which is so manifestly clear the soviet union those people said was a communist totalitarian monstrosity mm. it was the empire of nations so the moment gorbachev found political courage to open the door all those nations broke loose and the Soviet Union ignominiously collapsed. Well, you know, I spent indeed many, many years working in the archives and interviewing many participants, and this is not the story I discovered. Mm. This is the story what people want to hear about, and that's what the story that fits into their pre-existing concept of the nice uh, Western-centered world where liberalism is the only viable ideology, as mm. Frank Fukuyama told us long ago. And this is, I'm afraid, not longer the world we're facing today. So I wanted to tell the real story of the collapse where, you know, a, that was a perfect storm where the Soviet Union not only confronted the structural problems inherited, mm. I don't know, since Stalin and Lenin, but the Soviet Union fell victim to a strange uh, leadership or sometimes lack of leadership to financial crisis where the leadership lost control of the national currency, mm. the ruble, and indeed confronted 
uh, confronted nationalism in a big way, confronted uh, secessionist movements, uh, but uh, most extraordinarily confronted the secession of the core people of the Soviet Union, the Russians themselves. And that was mm -hmm. one of the most surprising questions. Why the Russians themselves turned against what in the West was called their own empire? That's right. For the West, the Soviet Union was Russia, and all of a sudden, in a kind of split of mind, Russians turned against themselves. And that made, made my book the, the, the most unpredictable and fascinating journey through two or three years of history, completely unknown for the West. Hmm. You know, Professor Zubog, you know, when we talk about the Soviet Union, it's so interesting that just given by the title, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's so interesting that we know that back in the days, when I was a student in high school, when we heard about this country, Soviet Union, naturally that we will link with the former U.S. President Ronald Reagan. Of course, that we remember not only he was a great speaker, but also he was really firm on uh, dealing with the international crisis. However, in the book, or in your perspective, Ronald Reagan was not the groundbreaker, was not really the true engine to break the Soviet Union. So can you help us to understand what indeed made the Soviet Union collapse? And I mean, again, what was the common misunderstanding from the American side? Well, I know this is a great American myth that Ronald Reagan uh, ended the Cold War because he was so tough That's right. on communism, so uncompromising to the Soviet Union. And uh, what Americans prefer to remember is the early Reagan. Mm. Reagan that gave new hope to America. He was sort of, he was not Trump, of course, but he was <laughs> a pre-Trumpian kind of leader who turned to Americans after the you know, the period of the 70s when, you know, inflation was high, nobody knew uh, what is American mission in the world after the loss of Vietnam, defeat in Vietnam. And Reagan told Americans, we're a great nation, you know, That's we'll, right. by the way, we'll face down communism and, you know, we should be the primary uh, leader of the free world. All this great rhetoric. It was a great communicator. What people don't uh, remember, of course, that Reagan changed fundamentally after assassination attempt on his life in uh, 84, 83, 84, he began to write personal and handwritten letters to the Soviet leadership, trying to find a pretext to meet with them. Mm. So in his mind, the United States reached a, a, you know, the pinnacle of power again. It was strong enough to talk to the, to, to, to the communists. And also in his mind, Reagan made a distinction already. He didn't do it before between the Russians and the communists. In his mind before, Russians were all communists. Then, you know, somebody told him, oh, no, Russians are great people. They're pr proud of their history, a long history, 1,000 years, and great culture, by the way. So that late Reagan reached out to Gorbachev, and there are plenty of books about him and Gorbachev taking important steps to rebuild trust and finish the Cold War. But back to my story, I don't think, uh, well, first of all, I, 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 you know, I think that this is a great story, but it was told before mm. in so many books. My book is not about the end of the Cold War. It's not about this narrative. It, you know, the Cold War, as most people believe, 
ended uh, or began to end most dramatically uh, when the wall fell. There's a, such a symbol of ending uh, uh, the Cold War kind of moment. And that's November 1989. My book is about two uh, uh, subsequent years from November 1989 to December 1991. And in Western and world imagination, because the world imagination depends so much on Western media mm. and the way pe people communicate to you narratives in English. This is what we have. We have US currency dollar to be the world currency and Western media to uh, English media, American media become the, the, the global media. So Okay, in this media, uh, pretty much nothing happened in the Soviet Union between November 89 and 91. It just collapsed. Mm. So you find any book describing in great detail how Reagan and Gorbachev, you know, blah, 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 ended the Cold War. And then, you know, you read further. And then probably in conclusion, probably two, three lines are written. And then the Soviet Union for some reason collapsed at the right. end of the story. As if this collapse was a necessary and essential consequence of the end of the Cold War. And my book says absolutely not. You know, nobody imagined that the Soviet Union would fall apart in, in early 1990. And even at the end of 1990, when many people uh, inside the Soviet Union already realized, hey, we have this huge crisis, financial mm. crisis of faith to political leadership, secessionism of republics, violence in republics, you, you know. Uh, even at that time, the majority of the people could not simply imagine that within one year they would become citizens of 15 independent uh, uh, states. Mm. That was unimaginable. So, you know, uh, responding to a Reagan cult, right. uh, I, I respect this phenomenon. I know that the name recognition is immense. Gorbachev is usually remembered as uh, Reagan's partner, you know, ending the Cold War. People argue who did most in this story. That's right. You know, those who don't dislike Reagan, by the way, they always opt for Gorbachev. They always say, oh, it was Gorbachev, not Reagan. That mm. ended the Cold It's not my story at all. My story is what happened after this. You know, Professor Zubak, it's so interesting that, again, you mentioned in your book that you took on a factual but a brand new approach to help readers and help the audience to understand the facts behind the collapse of the Soviet Union. But, you know, interestingly, that I remember before introducing your book to the friends around me, you know, when I say, hey, let's uh, get a copy of this book or let's talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union, one country that most people are more likely to uh, uh, relate it to is the country of China. And so that's why I want to know that with the ongoing matter under Gorbachev, and of course that, you know, uh, Reagan, he was very, very resentful uh, towards the growth of communism. And so I want to know that was there any correlation between Soviet Union and China back in the days, just pre the collapse? Well, there's enormous <laughs> resonance. I'm not sure about correlation. When we say correlation, you know, we have to put a political science cap mm. and analyze and quantify and whatnot. This is not my way, by the way. 
Um, but resonance, when we say something and that resonates, it means that in China, many educated people who know history, particularly recent history of China, of course, realized very well that after 1949, the Chinese People's Republic of China was modeled to a great extent on the country they admired, That's the right. Soviet Union. And uh, Soviet advisors were there. Later on, they left in 1960, but they did a lot to build up Chinese educational system, science, you know, all the way, you know, industries and all the way to the Chinese nuclear program. Mm. You know, it's all well known. Now, uh, we also know that uh, despite all the tension and later reconciliation, uh, the Chinese always paid special attention to the northern neighbor for various historical reasons. And when the Soviet Union suddenly collapsed, uh, and I'm not a sinologist, I'm not an expert, but I read enough to see that for China it came as a huge jolt, mm. a huge shock. Um, and the soul searching began at the very top of the country's elite inside the Communist Party. Can it happen to us as well? Because we have been we have been modeled so much on the Soviet Union. We also have minorities. We also have the, all kinds of other problems. You know, are we doomed to collapse in the same way as the Soviet Union? Uh, fortunately for China, it took a very successful road to modernization and so on and so forth. But I still see, and in my Chinese students and in, in various Chinese experts that I encounter, Countered, there's some sense of deep unease. Mm. You know, even with enormous success, economic success, there's still kind of a worm of doubt inside this. Uh, what about our international legitimacy? Uh, what about we, we if we become the next uh, object of American uh, riot, you know, mm. uh, suspicion and a new Cold War, as for instance today? Uh, you know, all these things are almost under the radar. Uh, of of China, Chinese consciousness, and this uh, explains to me why so many Chinese, and I hope they will uh, read uh, read my books before, such as The Failed Empire, for instance, was translated into Chinese, and hopefully will read my new book because it's not exactly what will happen to China. It's not, but it's a useful kind of parallel world with many things that resonate with you and with your experience. Mm. Uh, communist communism ideology, one party rule, you know, minorities, problems of potential success secession and so on and so forth. You know, Professor Zubak, again, going back to the conversation we had before, in terms of communicating with the Chinese audience, and as much as they, or, yeah, they are familiar with the name Reaganism, you know, I consider that Ronald Reagan was just not only the president for the America, but also he actually made the trip to China during his presidency, you know, he made a great appearance with the Chinese audience and communicated with Chinese youth in terms of, you know, introducing the idea of democracy and understanding this, uh, uh, the bounding relationship between these two countries. But meanwhile, if I'm not mistaken, historically, uh, historically speaking, when Ronald Reagan actually made his trip to China, 
some of the students challenge him in terms of understand another leader that Professor Zubak, you mentioned previous, previously, is the Gorbachev. And we know that based on your book or based on your research, that Gorbachev was trying to dismantle the entire system of Stalinism. Now, the question to you is, help us to understand what was Gorbachev was actually trying to accomplish in terms of shaping his policy back in the days, and how much did his leadership impact on the people back in the days? Well, very simple, Will. When Gorbachev became a leader, the Soviet Union was in a state of Stasi's, uh, you know, uh, looked like an immutable construction and so rigid, so uh, difficult to change, uh, you know, uh, after all these years, particularly under previous leadership that sort of uh, uh, ruled and died, mm. you know, being in the Kremlin. So it, it looks immutable. And when Gorbachev started his reforms, I, I guess, you know, he had a few assumptions. First, that, uh, you know, Stalinist system that uh, persisted to an extent uh, in the Soviet Union until uh, 1985 when he became the leader, that this system outlived uh, its whatever purpose it had. It had many negative purposes like terror, mm. gulag, and all these things we remember. But, you know, in the eyes of some, it had positive purposes, like, for instance, uh, mobilization of resources to, uh, to ensure the country's uh, security, such as building, you know, a, a nuclear parity with the United States of America, despite the fact that the Soviet Union economically was many times weaker mm. and smaller than the United States. That was regarded as a great achievement of in in time in, in you know in the fifties when Gorbachev was young, but by the time he became the leader, you know, people wanted something different. People mm. wanted better living standards, consumer goods, uh cleaner environment. Um, you know, and yes, more uh, civil rights, um, less oppressive uh, and depressive uh, political regime. And Gorbachev uh, did grow with everyone who thought the same. Yes, we may have reached that moment when we need to move along this front, reforms. You know, when he started, however, had no clue how these reforms can be executed. And, you know, it's surprising from, from the perspective of a Marxist-Leninist ideology. You start with what? You start with political reforms? Or economic reforms. It's not quite clear. Lenin right. would say, "Let's seize." Lenin would have said, "Let's seize power, and then we built a new economy and a new society because we are in power." Mm. You know, Marx would have said, "Oh no, no, no! You know, you have to wait until economy, you know, reaches certain level and people, and so on and so forth." So those two trends revolved, you know, around what Gorbachev should do, and I think he start. He ultimately decided, "Let's try to change." economy. Mm. He started early in 1987-88 and unfortunately this reform was not to take a step towards a market economy but to decentralize the existing economy which led to disastrous and counterproductive results when instead of creating a new viable economy based, I don't know, on profit, efficiency, competition, 
all those things under the state control. It could have been done under state control, mm. but you know, opening up to the world as as it uh, as it was later in China. Uh, but instead of he decentralized the old one and uh, you know created a lot of corruption, and people simply began to steal to mm. hollow up the existing economy without creating new goods. And you know, the, the most fav- favorite. The favorite thing for so-called Soviet business under late Gorbachev was what? To take state oil at state prices, get a license to sell it abroad at world prices and pocket the currency and pocket the profit without paying taxes. So a lot of those schemes were created under Gorbachev. Then uh, uh, pretty soon it became clear that this economic perestroika fail, is failing. Mm-hmm. Then Gorbachev said, oh, well, you know, if it's failing, it must be because the communist apparatus stands in the way. This communist so-called red aristocracy, I know in China they use this expression, you know, red nomenclatura in the Soviet Union. Let's remove this. Uh, from equation and uh, let people decide and create multi-layered representative institutions like Lenin, uh, you know, used to do in the past, Soviets, councils. And he began to do it in 1989 and it turned out to be the next phase of disaster mm. because there was you know, nothing on, uh, on the shelves. In China, by the way, economy already began to fill the shelves for the Chinese. Prices went up and that created discontent, but there were goods. Right. In the Soviet Union, discontent came from the absence of goods. And in this bad economic situation, when people grumbled about everything economic, to open up the room for political discussion would be automatically to invite political populism, economic populism, uh, all kinds of demagogues, and yes, nationalists who would say immediately, the Soviet Union is a failing project, it's a failing state. Let's just create independent states on the basis of 15 republics that constitute the Union. So right Right away, uh, Gorbachev uh, exacerbated economic problems, and then instead of dealing with this economic problem, changing the course, he opened up uh, opened up political arena. Well, I love democracy and civil rights myself, and at the time, as a young man, I applauded Gorbachev. We were allowed many, many things that we didn't have before. Life was looking up politically, very much brighter, much more interesting mm. demonstrations, you know, free, free and freer press, fascinating reading everywhere. But economy was going south. Mm. So in my book, I write, you know, Gorbachev was a hapless captain who thought that he was steering the Soviet ship westward. But in fact, it was going south, mm. that is, down. You know, Professor Zubok, it's so interesting that, again, throughout the entire book that what you documented, not only historically, but also factually, that a lot more information that we realize that some of the content that we read before, there was a missing piece and there was important factual related information that was missing about Gorbachev. And of course, that before, you know, uh, inviting our show, that we also had a general survey from our audience to just to ask you the questions regarding, you know, the, the research behind this book and also some of the questions are more relevant today. Now, here's the next question. 
Professor Zubak, someone says we're living in this post-industry society. So in other words, someone call it the information society. Now, as we mentioned at the intro, you know, the, the crisis between Russia and Ukraine at this moment, it has drastically changed. So the question to you is, how is the current political system, globally speaking, shape the nation of Russia today? How the current system affects uh, what Russia does politically? Yes. I didn't quite get the question. That's right. Yep. So in other words, how is what's happening today internationally affecting Russia's behavior? How would you explain that? Well, Russia, well, let me start with a premise that not all, not everything that Western press uh, writes about Russia, uh, you know, reflects what Russians think about themselves. <laughs> that shouldn't come to you as a surprise. You know, uh, people, you know, in any country, when they read what, for instance, New York Times or Economist or the Financial Times write about them, they say, is that really what is happening around me? You always have this kind of sense of, you know, um, you know, I would say constructive mistrust, right? And uh, Russians, I don't think that uh, Russians think, and I don't think Putin think that uh, there is uh, a, a new Soviet Union on the agenda. Mm. That, you know, uh, that Russians uh, sleep and dream to reconstitute the Soviet Union. I don't even think that it's Putin's agenda, frankly. So what is a uh, Russian agenda? Russian agenda is to uh, resume normal relations with the rest of the world, to, to trade, to do business, because Russia is a very different creature from the Soviet Union. That's right. It's so deeply economically interconnected. It's an open country country in terms of travel that is before covid of course we all became closed because right. but before you know russians were free to travel whenever they wanted their most preferred destination was uh, europe uh, but they traveled to china in droves they traveled all over the world so uh, you know the, the the dream is to return to normalcy now people say what prevents it is Russia's annexation of Crimea. And this is where I can contribute to the understanding, to better understanding of the story. Why did Putin seize Crimea? Uh, I, I should say empathy that is understanding is does not equal sympathy you know i uh, you know like everyone i was shocked by this annexation but by its abruptness by the resulting conflict but uh, somehow deep uh, in in my historical imagination i understood that yes russians would welcome it and they did fortunately or unfortunately because the crimean problem has this long symbolic uh, connection. I wouldn't mention other aspects of it. I mean, Kosovo, Taiwan, whatnot, you know, but it had very special connotations for the Russian political imagination. And when the Soviet Union was collapsing, and most of people, I repeat, did not expect it 
to collapse. Did not imagine that Ukraine would be a separate country. Mm. Uh, the question of Crimea automatically popped up right there in 1990 and 1991 uh, in the minds of uh, many, many Russians. In other words, even those people who were prepared to, although it was immensely difficult for Russians at the time to imagine that, hey, Ukraine is not part of the common state, as it was for centuries, that would be an independence. Yeah, brotherly stay close to us, but in independent state. But then they would say, oh, what about Crimea? Mm. Crimea should be returned to Russia. And, you know, yes, I know all the legal arguments. I know, you know, various historical arguments, but, you know, it's part of the national myth nationalist mythology. Mm. That uh, was uh, was you know heading again towards towards the crisis. Could it have been prevented? You know, I found an intriguing evidence when the two leaders, three leaders in fact, but two of them were the leader of Ukraine and the leader of Russia, Yeltsin, met in Belarus. Right in December 1991 at a famous meeting or infamous meeting to dis declare the Soviet Union null and void. One advisor to Yeltsin advised him very strongly to raise the issue of the future of Crimea there mm. because that person who knew very well the situation in the Soviet Union understood very well that Crimea is such a symbolic issue that would not just pass away mm. in Russian national imagination. And the collapse between the two nationalist myths, Ukrainian and Russian, can happen above all over Crimea. So why, he, said, he advised Yeltsin, raise this issue, put it on paper, at least so that later you could have you would tell the public i tried and then mm. so on and so forth mm. uh, or make it make the ukrainians at least uh, admit that there's such a sensitive issue that it should be negotiated after some years and uh, maybe a plebiscite should be done later on to decide what happens to crimea with Russia or Ukraine, they would like to stay, in mm. other words. So before it turns into, I don't know, Northern Ulster, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, whatever, uh, Yeltsin had other concerns. He didn't do it. And immediately after the Soviet Union ceased to exist, you had a huge spike of tension mm. over Crimea between Ukraine and, and the Russian Federation, just days after the Soviet Union ceased to exist. So, you know, when I went through all these articles and documents, I, I had a complete deja vu, mm. complete deja vu with, uh, you know, the, the situation post-2014. And I said to myself, oh, well, we can ignore history only to our own peril. You know, the ignorance does not save from, from you know, repeating this, you know, later on, 20 years later, 30 years later, does not matter. Right. Well, but Professor Zubak, again, coming back to today's geopolitical shift, the partnership between China and Russia today seem to be terrifying to the Western culture. So in other words, you know, for decades that, uh, you know, before this current presidency in the U.S., the American government was afraid 
that China was going to take over the whole world, which we know that, ideally speaking, it probably was never the intention from the Chinese side. But if we look at today, what's happening between those two countries, Russia and China, not only this political or social partnership, but meanwhile, just militarily speaking, these two countries seem to grow closer and closer. But again, it could be a major threat to the Western world. Now, from your perspective, Professor Zubak, why do you think today that the U.S. is so afraid that the, uh, the alliance or the partnership between China and Russia today? Well, every foreign policy is, uh, starts uh, starts in domestic politics, as we know. So, American concern about China, of course, is rooted in domestic insecurity and domestic split between the you know pro-Trump Republicans mm. and anti-Trump Democrats. And you know, I well, I lived in the United States for twenty years, as I as I said, and even back then. I lived in Philadelphia. A number of my students and colleagues and friends would say, "Oh, why all this concern about Russia? So, so you know, uh, so too many memories of the Cold War. The Cold War is over. Right. But the next real crisis, the next real conflict, will be with China." Mm. And I kept hearing it from people, and it was and it was like you know a hidden, a suppressed. Uh, undercurrent mm -hmm. in an American public opinion, and I understood. I thought I thought I understood why, because you know the discontent of losing highly paid industrial jobs. All goods were made in China, which was nice when you go and buy them. But when you you know you don't cannot get high paid jobs as they used to. That's a, that's a mm -hmm. negative side. So that, that's a good way to start to understand the current current you know you know. And when Americans uh, gradually be realize that China a is may surpass them so America will no longer be number one which mm. they lived with for a whole century and, and that became part of American national identity that they are number one in everything and all that's of a right. sudden hey another country that's that's obvious and but but also but also kind of a sense that uh, they began to say, Oh, Comrade Xi is not going to make a transition to liberal democracy. <laughs> uh, that's the one part you rule. And all of a sudden, you kept reading for years and years and years in the American press that there's one party room, but they immediately added, but China is changing, sure enough. So there was, you know, as if it was not clear that this party rule would not easily go away. As if it, as if it was not clear that the red aristocracy in China would not let its power go mm. to a multi-party, multi-faction liberal system. No, I, you know, the press, the media, all think tanks kept saying China is great. China is great partner. This is, you know, I marry China. Mm. You know, the world is flat. All kinds of platitudes were said. And all of a sudden, this chorus uh, stopped and another right. chorus began to emerge. And this is, for me, the most interesting phenomenon as a historian. I even looked up, some of my friends told me, there's a, there's a term that nobody knows, murmuration, when a huge flock of birds suddenly begin to coalesce mm. and create a giant cloud of birds. And it, as I looked at uh, the chorus, anti-Chinese chorus, that appeared around the time that Trump began, became the president, 
And I realized, indeed, there's a huge power in American public opinion, media institutions and think tanks to coalesce in a sort of murmuration. Mm. You know, they all go and flock. They suddenly refocus and begin to rediscover the Cold War language. Hey, you know, America is the leader of the free world. Hey, China is the next big enemy. And here, you know, all these um, the the lexicon of the Cold War that seemed to be buried uh, with the Soviet Union in the past being rediscovered and redirected against China. Now, we may say, so why so much fuss about Russia, a relatively declining power in, uh, in, in Eurasia and not about China? Of course, the boycott of the Olympics we have, but most of the crisis is in Europe mm. between NATO and Russia. Why is it happening? I don't think anybody plans for it. I don't think, uh, you know, the Biden administration really wants to refocus to Russia from their pivot to Asia. They're reluctant to do it. But such is the power of murmuration, (laughs) using the strange term, Latin term, of, you know, when you start, when you launch a new Cold War mentality in, you know, in Western media is exactly, I think, rediscovering this right now, you first focus on a familiar target mm. and Russia is is a is substitute for the Soviet Union I think and it's so much easier in the United States uh, where so many people descendants from Eastern Europe to focus attention on the you know this Russia thing is it strategically wise not at all I think it's strategically unwise it pushes Putin and the Russians closer and closer to the Chinese right does the is it in the interests of the United States? No, I don't think so. What kind of interests, you know, to have this the, 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 a Russian-Chinese block created? There's no interest in that. Um, so it's a little bit schizophrenic to me in quiet sort of under the radar discussions, you 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 hear uh, conversations. Oh, we should. How how far we can push Russia to China? We should be stopped. We should be you know replaced with more nuanced policy. But you go to the murmuration of the part of the public rhetoric, and it goes and swirls in the same kind of uh, anti-Russian and anti-Chinese uh, way. So uh, is it something uncontrollable? about this process i think so democracies uh, are, are systems that can only be partially controlled mm. in my view they can't you know the press cannot be stopped from doing something that the press just do you know that's creating this uh, exaggerated threat about something and uh, um, the, the, the crisis about Ukraine to me, and I, I hope uh, this is the day one for de-escalation. I may be wrong, there may be other spikes along the way, because the problem of Russian-Ukrainian clash of narratives is not resolved. Mm. And therefore, the problem that started the crisis is still there and will generate new spikes of tension. But for this particular crisis, it may be going down a little bit, pretty much like pandemic 
pandemic waves. Yeah, okay, one next, we're waiting for the next virus, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, I wish it's, uh, I wish we can declare it over. Well, hopefully, so hopefully, we can learn from it. We can learn from it to be, uh, how to say, to be more nuanced, to understand that the Western waves of anxiety are just waves. Uh, should we ignore? No, to our peril. There's serious factors in international politics, these waves of insecurity. But should we understand better the nature of these waves? Uh, they're more complex than just 100,000 Russian troops. Mm. They're more complex and they do relate to the shift in Western imagination from relative relaxation about U.S. leadership in the world to anxiety about possibility of losing American leadership mm. in the world. Well, I mean, Professor Zubak, I, I, again, as much as I agree with you, but let's hope and I pray that our next pandemic is not going to come too close to us yeah, very soon, yeah, because yes. that is going to change all of us. But anyway, I the last question I want to end is going back to your book. Again, your book is entitled Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union. Not only for the readers domestically, but also for the readers internationally, Professor Zubak will be one of the important lessons that you want the readers to understand from your book. So what will be the number one, the significant fact or significant truth you want the readers to understand after reading your book? The most important lessons, uh, is, uh, lesson is that autocracies are fragile mm. and uh, the Soviet Union was a rigid autocracy, excelled before, you know, won the Second World War, uh, com competed with the United States and maintained parity and in strategic forces, but it collapsed suddenly from other reasons mostly internal reasons like mm. losing control over its currency for instance losing control over you know nationalist discourses internally and secessionism of, ma of ma non-russian minorities and most amazingly i repeat the majority of the russians themselves decided to to be secessionist for mm. some reason uh, going against the system losing losing faith in the system so the lesson of fragility of authoritarianism is very strong in the book but in conclusion i wanted to expand it a little bit and uh, warn my readers in democratic countries of the west against complacency about their own systems i mean democracy never mm. fights democracy democracy always fixes the problem yes but not automatically we saw in Trumpian Trump-led America how close everything came to a civil violence of course so my book uh, I dedicated it to all reformers mm. and again it's not only reformers that try to um, you know democ democratize authoritarian systems that's a particularly delicate and dangerous task but to reformers everywhere including in those democracies that consider themselves stable firm lasting for centuries don't take it for granted mm. you may face inadvertently a perfect storm 
where, for instance, an inadequate leadership is there or age, aged leadership or lack of political will or lack of uh, adequate uh, expertise. Uh, and all this, unfortunately, leads to tragic or at least dramatic consequences. Mm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Zubak, and he's the professor of international history with expertise on the Cold War the Soviet Union, Stalinism, and Russia's intellectual history in the 20th century. Of course, their latest book is called a Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union. Professor Zubak, thank you so much for taking your time to join our show. And it's been a pleasure of talking to you. And of course, it, most importantly, you help us to understand today's geopolitical shift. Not only that the topic you touch on and democracy, on authoritarian countries, and, you know, again, the, uh, the meaning of uh, a unification and economic impact. But most importantly, you really took us all the way back to the journey that we should never forget. So, Professor Zubak, thank you so much for doing this.